Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Good afternoon, and thanks for listening. On today's show, my guest, Bundy Boyd, discusses her latest play called An Inner Voice about Margaret Sanger's fight in the 20th century for access to birth control information for all women. Bundy Boyd is a writer, pianist, and composer living in Penobscot. She has published short stories and essays in diverse anthologies and magazines. Her original music has been performed in churches, schools, and on television. She's the author of four plays with music about 19th and 20th century women. I won't go into much detail about Margaret Sanger in this introduction since Bundy will explain who she is and why she chose to write a play about her. But I wanted to let you know about an article I came across as I was doing research for this interview. It's called... How False Narratives of Margaret Sanger Are Being Used to Shame Black Women by Imani Gandhi on the site rewired.news. If you decide you want to learn more after listening, I highly recommend the article and I will post a link in the episode's description. To sum up the article, Gandhi writes, Ultimately, Margaret Sanger was a complicated woman living in a complicated time. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Bundy. Welcome to Reproductive Left. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Hi, Abby. I'm just really pleased to be here, and thank you so much for the invitation. So we'll get right to it, just starting by asking you, who was Margaret Sanger? She was probably the most important uh, reformer of the 20th century. She led the charge to gain access to birth control information for all women. And Sanger was born in Corning, New York in 1879, the sixth child of 11 children. Her mother, Anne Higgins, was constantly nursing babies and had tuberculosis besides. She died at the age of 50. In her autobiography, Sanger describes how the wealthy owners and executives of the Corning Glass Company in Corning, New York, lived on the hills above the town with small families. But the factory workers lived in the lowland, Uh, in poverty, and her first impressions of the community in which she lived were of quarreling, drunken men, most with large families. After her schooling, Sanger became a nurse, and she did her training in New York City, or in the area of New York, where she saw mothers dying from botched and self-inflicted abortions. Babies were dying from malnutrition and diseases. Sanger knew she had to help these women get access to information to prevent conception so they could space their babies and not have babies every single year. She fought hard against the Catholic Church that opposed artificial means of contraception. She also battled Congress, 
which had enacted the Comstock anti-obscenity laws in 1873. They disallowed any contraceptive information to be shared, distributed, distributed, displayed, or mailed. Sanger died in 1966 after the birth of the contraceptive pill in 1960. In fact, she was called the mother of the pill because she had urged the medical and scientific communities to come up with a safe, easy, and effective contraceptive pill. And for any woman on the pill today, she can thank Margaret Sanger. Well, she sounds like a certainly an interesting woman. Um, and you have an incredible play that you wrote about her life. Can you tell us and our listeners why you decided to write that play? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. I've um, written a number of plays with original music. I'm a composer, too, uh, over the last 30 years. One was about Harriet Tubman and her flights to freedom, and another was about the life and times of Harriet Jacobs, the author of Incidents in the Life of, the, of a Slave Girl, first published in 1861 and still available today. In the early 1990s, I was telling an acquaintance about my slave plays. He suggested that the next play I do should be about Margaret Sanger. Well, I thanked him very much for the idea, and I rushed in my house to go to the World Book and find out who Margaret Sanger was. I was bowled over by her dedication to fighting for access to birth control information for all women. I wrote the play, and by now it's gone through several titles, three or four, and many, many revisions. Finally, I have a manuscript that I really like, entitled An Inner Voice. Sanger said, and I quote, All my life I have acted on an inner voice, and when that speaks to me, it speaks wisely and never fails me, unquote. She helped millions of women to space their babies. At some point in my life, I thought I wanted to have six children. When my two sons were born very close in age, I decided two were plenty for us. Thank goodness I did because it allowed me to have a life of my own. People have mixed feelings about Margaret Sanger. Um, what would you say the biggest misconceptions are about her and what she's done? Sanger opened a clinic in Harlem in the 1920s when the area was feeling the first effects of the Depression. There was high unemployment there. There was venereal disease. And uh, maternal and infant mortality were far more common in that area. Even so, there was uh, opposition to the clinic and skepticism, really, really big skepticism about contraceptives and what they were doing. However, later on, Martin Luther King Jr. praised Sanger for her work, saying she was willing, quote, willing to accept scorn and abuse until the truth she saw was revealed to the millions, unquote. Jonas Salk, the medical scientist, wrote that, quote, population growth when uncontrolled is like a disease. The cure must come from within the family of humankind. Sanger foresaw the danger and suggested a way, unquote. A common misconception is that she was a proponent of abortion. She would, she would have been happy if all methods of birth control were 100% effective. So she was not really pro-abortion. She just thought that birth control would avoid abortion. I find that interesting. So now um, she's considered the founder of Planned Parenthood, um, which is one of the largest abortion providers in the United States. But I had just read that she actually herself was against abortion. Uh, contraceptives are not 100% effective. And people sometimes forget. So um, I think if she were alive today, she would uh, say that abortion 
should be legal and safe. Um, so why was Margaret Sanger so controversial? We'll start with that one. Why was she? Well, one of the reasons was that in the early in the early 20th century, the topic of eugenics was being discovered, discussed. Eugenics means well-born. The interested parties sought to change the thinking from fewer children of the poor to more children of the fit. So that was kind of a problem. Sanger was part of the discussion, but not fully on board with all of the ideas. In fact, she questioned the eugenicists themselves, and Sanger found that they wanted only two or three children. They did not want many, many children. The eugenics movement fortunately petered out sooner rather than later. Alex Sanger, Margaret's grandson, writes in his 2004 book, Beyond Choice, that eugenics was, quote, a tragic mistake. There are flaws in all of us. Look at Thomas Jefferson, a founding father, but one who owned slaves. And she remains a controversial um, person in history. Why do you think she is still today? Well, I think her, her, um, some of her statements are very much taken out of context. And I think that uh, my writing this play about her um, really highlights the primary focus of her life, which was gaining access to birth control. So um, some people are even against birth control. So, you know, she could be um, controversial for many, many reasons. Would you be willing to describe a couple of your favorite scenes from the manuscript? Sure. Um, my play, An Inner Voice, is in two acts and can be for, performed in under two hours with an intermission. I have just one original song placed at the end of each act. I started this play with about seven or eight songs, and then I sort of eliminated them. But I, some people say, uh, I did have a couple of readings, and we did do the songs, and some people say, oh, no, I love the songs. So who knows, maybe I'll have to put them back. But anyway, the, um, the words of this song, it, it, the song is called This Life is Mine, uh, or My Body, My Own. The words are as pertinent today as they were in Sanger's time. So hopefully by, by the end of this play, people will know the melody because it's sung twice, although the words are different for the end of the play from the um, end of the first act. But still, I think some people would be able to sing it. And it's possible that we should sing it um, and have words in the program. Uh, the play opens with Sadie Sachs, and Sadie Sachs's story was is one of the famous stories of Margaret Sanger's life. Um, some people say that it wasn't altogether true, but it was a compilation of a lot of different cases that she might have seen. Well, it's a pretty powerful story, so I open the play with it. Um, and Sadie Sachs is suffering from the effects of a self-induced abortion. When she asks how she can prevent another baby coming, the doctor tells her that Jake should go sleep on the roof. And he's, if he knew any um, methods of contraception, he wasn't allowed to tell her. So uh, she's desperate, and she asks Margaret Sanger um, if she knows any methods. And at that point, Margaret Sanger doesn't, except for um, withdrawal and condoms. Uh, and the rhythm method. So the last scene of Act One, that was the first scene of Act One, and the last scene portrays Sanger at her birth control clinic in 1916. It was located in Brownsville, a densely populated section of Brooklyn, New York, 
which um, had many, many immigrants. And she had a poster outside of this clinic. This was the first birth control clinic uh, in the whole world other than in the Netherlands. So here we are at the clinic, and there are three or four um, women outside with their babies waiting to go in and get the information. And over, but however, an undercover policewoman has bought a copy of Sanger's pamphlet that she entitled um, What Every Girl Should Know. So she gets arrested because she's selling this pamphlet and it's not allowed. The trial itself is pretty dramatic in this scene with desperate women testifying how many babies have died and how they can't make ends meet with the numbers of children they have. Consequently, for distributing materials and information to prevent conception, Sanger is sentenced to 30 days in Queens County Penitentiary. And she was willing to um, do anything, uh, even go to jail, for the sake of these women. But she was not willing to compromise and say, yes, I'll stop my clinic. She wanted to end this horrible law. The first scene of Act Two is the jail scene where she's incarcerated with prostitutes, petty thieves, drug dealers, pickpockets, and more. And there's one particular inmate that's next to her who's kind of a, a very different sort of woman. Her name is Josephine, and they befriend each other. And Josephine asks um, if she's been fingerprinted, and Margaret says, no, I'm, I'm not going to be fingerprinted. I'm not a criminal. And she also, Josephine also says, well, did they ask you what your religion was? And she says, I told them humanity. Sanger ends up, after the, the jail scene, teaching the women how to prevent conception when their sentences are up. So she did her work even in the jail. In another scene, um, the Catholic Church is shown registering its op opposition to a public discussion about the morality of birth control. In fact, Margaret Sanger sent a letter to this archbishop and asked him to participate on Friday evening in the discussion, and it was titled, Is Birth Control uh, Moral? So Archbishop Patrick Joseph Hayes touts the benefits of large families, citing the genius of Ben Franklin, who was the 15th child of his family. And John Wesley was the 18th child of his family, and he was the founder of the Methodist Church. So the Archbishop is saying, look at all these famous people. They were... They, were, they came from huge families, and we've got to keep these huge families up. However, Sanger counters his arguments about large family size by naming biblical characters that were single children or had just one sibling. And at the end, she says, Jesus is thought to have been a soul, the only mm -hmm. child of Joseph and Mary. So the verbal jousting between these two becomes comical or nonsensical. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and WERU. I'm the host, Abby Strout. Here with me today is Bundy Boyd, talking about her latest play titled An Inner Voice about Margaret Sanger's fight for birth control. Why do you think your play is important at this point in history? Well, that's a really good question. I think that my play really kind of reminds people, or if they didn't even know about Margaret Sanger, and I find many, many people do not know about Margaret Sanger. They've never heard her name. And I sort of expect people to know her name, but then again, I didn't a few years ago. So um, 
I think it reminds us all that the fight for access to birth control was really long and really fierce. In fact, she started working in 1912 on this whole problem, and actually at the end of my uh, play, it's 1937, and the American Medical Association finally decides that doctors may um, give out birth control information and, me and methods from a clinic. And that's, that's only two years before my sister was born. <laughs> it's very recent history. Yeah. So we absolutely cannot go back. Um, I just think that we must all be reminded that the, that the reproductive rights we enjoy were very, very hard won. And congressmen today are trying to put more and more laws, as you say, in place to restrict reproductive choice. But women really all around the world must have um, access to all aspects of reproductive health in order to support their families in the best way possible. Uh, they are in the workplace to stay. The women are in the workplace to stay. And, they, uh, and their needs as mothers, caregivers, and breadwinners must be embraced, not challenged. Reproductive health is an, a really important a global issue. Organizations such as International Planned Parenthood and Pathfinder International are making great strides in emerging countries. In fact, my daughter-in-law um, is Kate Stuckey. She grew up in uh, Blue Hill, and she works for Pathfinder, and she just recently returned from a trip to Bangladesh to review the programs there and see how they're working. She had an extraordinary trip. So it's crucial that we keep Margaret Sanger's quest going forward. Access to safe, effective birth control methods for all women everywhere, they should be national priorities. Um, and I think that my play is pretty poignant um, as a way to learn her story. And um, I would really like to uh, just have a reading first of it. Um, there are five scenes in the, first, in the first act and four scenes in the second act. And and you'll see through the play that she's thwarted and thwarted and thwarted. It, it, it's amazing that she had the stamina to keep up and keep fighting. And it's just wonderful that she fought for the pill because um, she only lived six years after the pill was invented, but she lived to see it. Mm -hmm. And um, she at the end of her life, she went out to... Uh, out to the uh, southwest and lived there. And um, she took up painting, actually. So she must have had a quieter life at the end of her life, quieter time. But her son, her grandson, Alex Sanger, um, he's the son of her, her son, Grant. Uh, Margaret had three children, Stuart, Grant, and Peggy. And Peggy died um, of pneumonia. I mean, she was only six mm -hmm. years old. And it was crushing to Margaret because her work, she said, was always to make Peggy's life easier as a woman when she got older. So um, she took that death very, very hard. Uh, but Alex Sanger today is the head of International Planned Parenthood. And he read a very, an original, I mean, he read a very early manuscript that I had written and I, I had the fun of um, having a picnic lunch with him in the middle of uh, Stonington Bay on somebody's boat. And um, 
so we talked nonstop about his grandmother, and it was really, really fascinating. And then I sent him, he went back after the summer to New York, and I sent him my manuscript, and he wrote, and that was a very, very early manuscript, mm-hmm. so it probably wasn't any good, but he, he told me it was just wonderful. <laughs> and so that was a good many years ago. Ever since then, I've been um, revising my manuscript lots, and so I'm hoping that now I have a really good manuscript, and I've been doing a lot of research in the meantime. So I hope I'm getting it right, and I hope that it will um, get out there, and I would love to hear from uh, any group that might want to do a, a, just an informal reading. That's great. And how would people get in touch with you if, um, if they're interested? Well, my email is bhboit, B-O-I-T, at myfairpoint.net. And that's the easiest way to reach you? Probably. Um, I'm going to go back and ask one final question, because as you were talking, I, I just got really interested in that she was doing this work in parallel with the women's suffrage movement. It was happening at the same time. Was there a big movement around Margaret Sanger? Were feminists um, supporting her, or were they over here doing the work of suffrage and then equal rights amendment? Well, I think they were pretty much doing their own thing over there. But she did have a huge following, and she started this magazine in 1912 called The Woman Rebel. And she was firing up her, her audience and getting them to think, women to think about economic freedom. And she would um, talk about having articles or information about birth control in, in, uh, in the March issue of 19, 1914. And um, she got a, a letter from the post office department said that they couldn't that those magazines could not be mailed because there was information that was not allowed. Well, she never did put um, she didn't put in that first issue any information, practical information about. She just said we were going to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, she the the magazine got out and survived for six months, and then she started the birth control review. So she she kept gathering audiences. And she spoke uh, around the country at great length. Um, In fact, she was away from her children much of the time. And uh, the children suffered because they were, because their mother was away so much. And she traveled in Europe to learn uh, birth control methods because they were far more advanced in Europe. So, um, and then she, she traveled all over. She went to Japan, she went to India, she went a lot of different places. So she was gathering um, huge numbers. And in fact, her father, who was a free thinker, Irishman, uh, and, and uh, he must have been a wonderful person to know, very fiery and very, um, very independent. And he admonished her. He said, uh, leave this world better than you found it. Mm. But he also said that you have to get the momentum of people. And that's what he was doing. He would get interesting speakers to talk on social ills or social changes or whatever. And um, so he said, that's the way you're going to get some movement. And that's what she did. And she was given lots of awards, and she, she had huge audiences. I wish we could have 
been part of the audiences. Yeah, I, well, I love the title, Woman Rebel. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on Reproductive Left with me today. Do you want to, one last time, give your contact information if anyone wants to follow up with you? bhboyt at myfairpoint.net. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed being with you, Abby. Thank you. And I think you're doing wonderful work here at the Naval Bodsbury Center. Thank you so much. And listeners, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Ask Mabel. You are listening to Reproductive Left, and now we are on to our Ask Mabel segment with nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier. Today, all of the questions are about abortion, and they are the most commonly asked questions that we hear. First, very simple question, maybe a longer answer, but does the abortion procedure hurt? That's such a as you say, Abby, a a very commonly asked question. And I think it's appropriate to ask the question. And I think it's appropriate to answer the question as honestly as possible. Every woman's body is different. And every woman's perception of discomfort is different. And our tolerance of discomfort varies from woman to woman. But as you and I have discussed earlier, with the hundreds of women that we've supported through abortion care, every woman makes it through the procedure and does okay. There certainly is discomfort involved with a suction abortion procedure. Some women may describe it as minimal to moderate cramping, and some women do use the term pain. Again, every woman gets through the procedure. We have medication that we can offer them to help them both with pain management as well as anxiety. And because we are there one-on-one with each woman, we can give her that personal support that will help her get through the procedure as comfortably as possible. The next question is also often asked, how safe is the abortion procedure? Abortion is a very, very safe medical procedure. There are only about a risk of 1% complications, um, and those risks, we rarely see complications post-procedure. Uh, it is a perfected um, procedure that has been provided, you know, for many years here at the center. Our providers are excellent. Um, We take great caution to determine the point in the pregnancy that each client is at so that the appropriate care is offered. And again, the risk of complications is less than 1%. Out of 100,000 abortion uh, cases in a year, one woman will die out of 100,000 cases. So again, a very safe procedure. If someone chooses abortion, will they be able to have kids later in life? There is zero risk of complications to get pregnant or continue a pregnancy with a normal um, abortion process, Um, whether that's one abortion that you've had or if it's five abortions that you have had. Your fertility should not be affected unless there was some very unusual uh, complication that might occur during the procedure. And again, the risk of that would be less than 1%. How do most women feel after their abortion? It's common for women to experience a range of emotions after an abortion. Usually, psychologically and psychological, excuse me, and emotional well-being uh, will improve after an abortion, and it's rare to experience long-term negative consequences. However, for some women, uh, abortion may not be so straightforward, and they may have difficulty coping with their decision. 
Women may have different and mixed reactions to abortion. Common reactions may include relief or rejuvenation, a feeling that things are getting back to normal, a sense of control over their life, clarity. They may feel more capable about decision-making and being more knowledgeable about their fertility and future contraception. Some women find that their relationships are actually strengthened um, as a result of their abortion experience, and many women will say, I do not have regrets at all. If the decision, though, was very difficult for the woman, she may have feelings of sadness and anger, disappointment, shame or guilt, uh, regret um, and loss, or she may actually feel grief. It's important that women examine their own circumstances um, and beliefs before choosing an abortion. It may be helpful for them to read stories uh, from other women about their experiences of choosing to have an abortion. Great. Thank you so much. You were just listening to Ask Mabel with nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier. That's it for today. Do you have a question for Ask Mabel? Simply email us at educate at mabelwadsworth.org. If you want to listen to past episodes of Reproductive Left, you can find us on weru.org in the archives. We're also on SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash mabelwadsworth. And you can subscribe on iTunes or through whatever podcast app you use. Thanks for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center. I'm Abby Strout, and please tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4.30, right here at Community Radio WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, or online at WERU.org.